We're in Exodus, so turn there with me. We are, we are really wrapping up. I've got one more sermon uh, that I'll preach next week on the gospel according to Moses, a brief look at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. Actually, next week we'll be in, in, in Numbers, but mainly in the book of Exodus. And the word Exodus means departure. Uh, it's the story of Israel's deliverance from bondage to, to, to the promised land uh, where, where, where God will, will, will have given them. And we've been studying, we've been saying all along that the, the theme really is the redeeming work of God. All the book of Exodus, if we could say it in one sentence, is the story of the redeeming work of God for his glory and our good. We've been saying all along in our studies that the book of Exodus teaches us about slavery. It teaches us about sin and salvation and deliverance and redemption. That we don't, we don't just define those words according to culture, maybe pop culture, maybe, you know, TV shows. But God shows us with the meaning of those words. And Exodus opens up with Israel in bondage, enslaved, uh, the Egyptians refusing to let them go. Unable to worship the one true God. And we said that slavery is, is just that. It is the, the, the refusal or the inability or, or the, the, the worshiping and the serving and, and the treasuring and, and the, the thing that is most central in your life other than God is called slavery. That's what the scripture teaches us. And until we come to worship, until we come to, to serving and treasuring God and God alone, can we be truly free? That's what, that's what Exodus is teaching us, that freedom and rescue and deliverance and bondage has its completeness, comes into completeness when we are utterly, utterly in worship of the Most High God. And our text this morning, as we look, and actually the theme as well, has to do with just that, is the glory of God. We're going to be talking about glory today. Turn to Exodus 33. That's where we will start. Story of the redeeming work of God for his glory, for our good, for our redemption, for our deliverance from slavery. Serving and worshiping and treasuring anything other than God. Exodus 33. Let me set the scene. God's people has been delivered from bondage. They have passed through the Red Sea. God opens that door. They pass through on dry land. God closed that door on the Egyptian army and, 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 and drowns them. God provides food and water in the desert for the, Egypt, for the, excuse me, the Israelites. Uh, uh, just a, a powerful, miraculous thing that God does. Um, they have been to the mountain where, where they camped. And Moses goes up to the mountain and, and, and receives the law. Uh, they make a covenant with God. God gives them the Ten Commandments, and, and then throughout the, the rest of the 20, 21, 22, 23 of the chapters, God lays out some more aspects of the Mosaic Law. God gives Moses the particulars about the tabernacle, which we're going to talk about today, that gathering place, that sanctuary where, where they would come to meet with God. He gives them precise, very precise, dimensions of the place, of this tabernacle, and he says at the, at the center of it, he wants to put the Ark of the Covenant, also known as the Ark of the Lord or the Ark of the Testimony, the witness. The Ark was a rectangular box made of uh, acacia wood. Um, the, the, whole, the hole in the box, which I'm going to show you in a little bit, was covered with, with, with a, 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 a piece of wood that was laminated in gold or, or you know, uh, filled with gold. Poles were inserted in the rings. Um, this lid that was, that was gold was called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And, and on this mercy seat in this, in this box with this gold layered cover were two cherubims in plated gold, hammered gold. Cherubims are, are the angelic beings involved in the worship and the praise of God. They serve, the cherubims serve as a purpose to, to magnify and kind of like a visible reminder of the power, the holiness, and the glory presence of God. This cherubim represents that. And, and that's where the glory cloud, we'll see in a moment, will, will descend into the, into the temple during the day of Yom Kippur, where there were sacrifices offered. The presence of God in the Shekinah glory, in this cloud, will rest between these two cherubims. God also, in chapters uh, earlier than 33, gives Moses the really the constraint Things concerning the priesthood. So that brings us up to here, except in chapter 32, right before we get chapter 33, you know the story. It's a famous story. It's a story of the golden calf. 
hmm, everybody's like, hmm, yeah. Moses up on the mountain. The Israelites were impatient. They couldn't connect that Wi-Fi, and it was two seconds. They were waiting. Can't get that page downloaded fast enough. We went to Files this week because of that reason. Um, but anyway, it's like, why is this page taking 1.2 seconds? I want one. 30 seconds, you know, point three. So they're waiting, they're impatient. They decide to go back to slavery. God was delivering them out of that to the place of worship, but they decide to go back and they take all their gold, you know the story, they throw it in a furnace and pop out a golden calf. At least that's what Aaron said. That's not true, but that, that's what happened. And there they are worshiping. And Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees this and he's angry, but God's even more angry and God says, I'm done. I am sending hot tar and destroying everybody. And Moses, being the mediator for the people, stands in the gap and says, Lord, don't do it. God forgives them. Some perish, but God does not do. And God's, Moses intercedes. And that's where we pick up our story Moses had just that. It just had happened. And what we see in our story, three things as we walk through this final ending of of Exodus, is three things that we'll we'll look at. The pursuit of the tabernacle. They're on their way and building this tabernacle where they will meet with God. They're in this pursuit. But Moses has a problem before he gets there. And we're going to look at that. Then we're going to see the purpose of the tabernacle. And then we'll look at the person of the tabernacle. Okay? So we're not going to get into great detail about the tabernacle. It's part of it. Um, we don't have that long to go. I don't want to get into each piece of furniture. But it's a great study. If, if Jesus is, is in all of that. But that's where we're going. The pursuit, the person, uh, the purpose, and the person. Okay? Number one. Open your Bibles. This is like the pre-encounter time with Moses and God. They're on their way. They're pursuing uh, the promised land. God will stop them. They will build a tabernacle. This is on the way, pre-tabernacle. And, and Moses runs into a problem. Okay? Exodus 33. I'm going to read a couple of verses, 1 through 6, and then we'll go to uh, 15 through 23. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up. You have brought up, catch that, out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I, God says, will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, any other site. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, now, if you read that and you think they are and you don't think you are, you missed the point, but that's another story, another sermon. Okay. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, right, and dress up. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore... The people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Jump to chap, uh, verse 15. Whoop, I turned too many pages. And he said to him, God said to him, uh, Moses said to him, if your presence, Moses talking to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Yeah, if your presence is going to me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is, not, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people and every people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know, my, and you, and I know your name. I know you by name. Verse 19, 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. The Lord and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back. But my face you shall not be seen. May God 
bless the reading of his word this morning. Here God says something to Moses in the beginning of this that, that rocks Moses' boots, shakes him up to the core. Verses 1 through 6 basically says to him, listen, you're going to go up to the mountain. I'm not going. I'm going to send you onward, but I'm not going. In fact, I'm going to send an angel before you that's going to make you a powerful leader, economically strong, politically strong, military success will be with you. But my presence will not go with you. Now, now the word presence throughout this chapter is very important, okay? It's the very thing that God is saying, I'm not going. My presence will not go with you. You can go, but I'm not going. Now, some of you may think, well, isn't God everywhere? The psalmist says, where can I go that, that you're not there? Psalm 139. If I go up to, to the heavens, you are there. If I descend to uh, Sheol, you are there. Where, where can I go? So there is a sense where God is everywhere, absolutely. But what God was saying in, it, it, to Moses is that his presence, the word presence is the Hebrew word panim, my face, panim, my face will not go with you. Now Moses said, Moses told, if you see my face, and what that means, if you see my, my fullness, if I, if I just show you in my fullness of who you are, you will melt on the spot. You, you, will, you will not be able to handle it. But what's happening here is Moses saying, but if your face doesn't go with us, if your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to go. His face, his presence, the panim of God. Moses is saying, I need that intimacy with you. If you send me on your way and your presence, your face, your, your panim, your, your intimacy, the relationship I have with you is not going and I don't have that. What I have here, I'm going there. I don't want to go. <coughs> you know, when you talk to somebody, especially someone you love, you talk to their elbow. No, right? You talk to their face. You look at them in their eyes. There's intimacy there. In fact, when you're angry with someone, what do you say? Talk to the hand, right? And, so, and for, you know, Moses is saying, look, you have all that waiting for me, but if you don't go, I don't want it. And some people will think, all right, that's good. Military success, political success, land flowing of milk and honey. I mean, everything that you see, everything that is good that you see, I'm getting. Lord, as long as I get that, life is good. Got my health, money, food, friends, no obligations to you, you won't be there. But Moses senses, senses something's really wrong with that. Verse 13, if your presence will not go, leave me here. In other words, I'd rather die in this sand pit wilderness while I'm in your presence than go to a place that is flowing with milk and honey, good services, lots of bling, right? And without you. I'll stay right here and die. In the wilderness, I, rather than go, that's the choice I have, I'm staying right here. Because if your face, if your presence, if your glory is not there, I, I'll stay here. And why would you, you know, most modern people, a lot of people would say, well, as long as I got what I get. But Moses is showing something to us here. I mean, he's making a radical statement. I'm not going because there's a point he's trying to make. And the point that Moses is trying to make is that our existence, his existence, our existence, is meaningless, is really empty without the glory presence of God, without the panim of God. Now, we're not just talking about an intellectual ascent of God. We're not talking about a higher power as you think you know him, her, or it, depending on what crowd you hang around with. Moses is saying there's something between the abstract understanding and, and the experiencing the face of God, that, that, that presence of God. Knowing him personally, knowing him experientially. The intimacy of his presence. Moses knew, verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Again, we're not talking about the full glory, but there is that presence, that, that, that face to face, that intimacy, verse 11, talks about. As he says, Moses spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Not his enemy, his friend. 
What did Moses come to realize? The purpose of our existence, the reason we were created is to know and to glorify God, to behold him, to praise him, to worship him, and to treasure him above all things. Moses knew it. And some of you be thinking, really? I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a question for the ages. Why did God make you? Why are you here? Why did God create us? Is it simply... For his glory? Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He should be feared above all gods. That's not suggestions. This commands, it's imperatives. Sing, praise, declare glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold, but bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. God is talking, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created, very simply, but brilliantly, for my glory, whom I formed and I made. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The reformers understood it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question was, what is the chief end of man? The answer, chief end of man, is is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. John Piper would say to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Okay, so the word glory... We've got to know what glory means. That's what Moses is saying. Show me your glory. I need your presence. So We've got to know what it means. The word glory is the, is the Hebrew word kabod. It's Greek word is doxazo. It means weightiness. It means value. Some of you heard me talk about this. We talk about this a lot. So God's glory is his incalculable worth. Infinite worth. Okay? His, his intrinsic greatness, preeminence, majesty, beauty, importance. Prominence, priority, value, weightiness, glory. Okay? Value, weightiness, glory. And the Bible says that we've been created for that. To, to, to see it, to treasure it, to, to praise him, to worship him, and to make that known. To, to worship, to praise, to glory, to, to treasure in the one true God. And that's a problem. That's a problem for son. I was just listening to um, John Piper talk the other day. And, and he said that Oprah Winfrey and Brad Pitt, both people who grew up in the church, walked away from their faith because of that doctrine. To declare the glory of God. I created you for my glory. Eric Reese, he's a professor and a writer of the University of Kentucky in, Le- in Lexington. He's a teacher in environmental journalism and literature. And he's famous for a quote he said. He said, God of the Bible is an egomaniac. Worship me. He's an egomaniac. Michael Prowse, he's a businessman, an editor in London Financial. Worship, he says, is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, unknown to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulations adulations, and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects like that. So why are all those people on their knees every Sunday? Listen, Moses gets it, right? I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving this place. I'm not going to the land of milk and honey, no matter how great it is, unless I can see and savor and treasure you, God, the glory presence of God. That's what he says. And some of you, all right, you're still like, you know what? I don't understand. Let me break it down in two ways. First of all, the reason why we were created for his glory, so you understand, one is that the eternal nature of the Trinity. Okay, the Trinity shows us 
partly why we created, okay? If God was unipersonal, means that God takes one form one day, takes another form another day, then it would be easy to say, or it would be concluded to say, that God created us because he needed worship. There was none, there was no love, there was no joy, there was no, 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 no praise until he made creation. Now creation worships him, something he needs, that's tripersonal or, or modalism. Some, some of you have heard that before. It's taught, it, it's, it's, it's heresy is taught centuries ago. It's taught in, in the book, The Shack, which is heretical teaching about the Trinity. If that were true, if God was unipersonal, then the first moment God created someone would be the first moment that God had relationship, God had love, there was glory and there was joy. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible teaches us that God is triune. The Trinity That's what the Bible teaches us. Is it difficult? Absolutely. Is it mysterious? Absolutely. But it explodes with life-shaped, wonderful applications. One God and three persons that know and love one another. One God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. And what are they doing from all eternity? Jesus tells us. You don't have to wonder. Listen to what he says. High priestly prayer, prayer. I glorified you on earth. He's talking to the Father. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There was glory before the world was. Before we were created, there was glory. Verse 24 of John 17. Father, I desire that they also, that's his followers, whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, why? You love me. Jesus says to the Father, because you love me before the foundations of the world. Glory, right? So this picture of the triune God and the essence of God and what's been happening in the Godhead from all eternity is, is, is love, joy, worship within the Godhead. C.S. Lewis, some of you read Mere Christianity. What does he call it? He calls it the dance. Listen to what he says. He says, God is not a static thing, not even a person singular, triune God, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost kind of a drama. Almost, he says, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. This third person is called in technical language the Holy Ghost. Spirit of God. The spirit of love is from all eternity a love going on between the Father and the Son. And now, what does it matter? C.S. Lewis writes, it matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in such, in each one of us. Or, putting it another way, each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in the dance. There's no other way to the happiness for which we were made. He finishes up by saying, they are a great fountain of energy and beauty, spurting up to the very center of reality. Listen, from all eternity, the triunity of God, one God, three persons, there is glory, there is love, there is joy, there is doting on one another. Okay, so that's true. That's what the scriptures teach us. Therefore, God did not create us because he needed glory. God did not create us because he needed relationship. God did not create us to, to, so that he could be love. God is love. God created us to share it. God created to share it, okay? Father, I, sent, I, I want them, my disciples, to see my glory, the glory you gave me from the foundation of the world because you love me. See, he already had it. He created us to share. He created us capable of reflecting the glory, capable of praising his glory, capable of giving and reflecting his love and glory to others. It's the dance, Moses did not understand that in its completeness. I get that. But he says, I'm not going. There's something about your glory. There's something about that makes me hold and behold your beauty and your presence and your majesty. I'm not going without it. King David, Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life, Lord. In your presence, in your panim, in your face, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Moses said, that's what I need. That's what I'm made for. That's why John Piper famously writes, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. 
Do you know that? If you don't know that, you'll be chasing other things. You'll be running after and pursuing other things, relationships, possessions, money, prestige, whatever it is, to love and to glory in, looking to fill the thing that only God can fill. See, we're worshipers. We're glory seekers. That's not the question. Listen, God is the only one. God is the only one in the universe. God is the only one who can command us to love, to worship, and to praise him and not be an egotistical maniac. God is the only one. God is the only one who, through commanding our worship and praise, fills the longing of our hearts, can satisfy us completely, fully, and eternally. If I say, love me, glory me, exalt me, worship me, right? I'm an egomaniac. But when God does it, it's the most loving thing. By exalting himself, he gives us the eternal joy we are looking for and happiness forever. He is infinitely glorious. He's all satisfying. He's offering us a, a everlasting and supreme joy in himself. Moses like, I need that glory. I'm not going. I'm not going. God says, I'll meet you. Let's go. Purpose of the tabernacle. Turn all the way to chapter 40. Verse 17. I'm going to skip through some of this, but I just want to give you the gist. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Now, he told them how to do it, what to build. Now it's getting erected, right? Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frame, put its poles, raised up the pillars. Spread the tent over the tabernacle, put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles in the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. He brought the dark into the tabernacle, set up the veil, which is the curtain of the screen, and, sacrif- and, excuse me, and screened the ark of the testimony, he protected it as the Lord commanded. Verse 22, he put the table. Verse 23, he arranged the bread. Verse 24, the lampstand. Verse 25, the lamps before the Lord. Verse 26, the golden altar, the tent of meeting. You see him just, it's like he's putting this together now. Verse 27, burn fragrance. Verse 28, uh, again, another door in the tabernacle, set the altar. Verse 30, he set the basin between the tent and the meeting and the altar, put water in for washing. He's setting it up. Verse 31, with which Moses and Aaron and his son washed their hands and their feet. Verse 32, when they went into the tent of meetings and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 33, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses finished his work. See what Moses is doing? He's setting it up. Now, some people look at this narrative and they're like, all right, you know, I'm not a builder. I really don't care about that. I mean, we just went through like smoke, fire, plagues, you know, deliverance, like all these great stories. We get to this place and Moses is particular exactly how God told him to do it, right? It's not a committee. Moses didn't say, hey, let's get some people together. We're going to put, we're going to, we're going to decorate this place and, and, um, you know, let's just put some ideas together. You guys notice I don't like committees, but anyway, God's like, save the committee, write this down. I'm the decorator. I'll tell you where things go. And and, and we see this erecting of this furniture. But this is not, this is really important. That's what I'm trying to say. This is really important. In so many ways, this chapter in Exodus is, is, is its glorious culmination of the book. Up to now, people have seen glances of his glory. They, they saw him rescue them. They brought food down from heaven. They saw all that. I mean, it was Moses that really saw the Shekinah glory. The people themselves, you know, corporately, were not there yet. Moses and the elders went up to the mountain, but the people were down below. Right? In fact, they're waiting for their exodus. The people were waiting in fact, the people were promised back in chapter 29, God tell them, I will consecrate the tent of meetings and the altar. I will consecrate Aaron, who the priest before me. Then I will dwell among the Israelites. I will be among the people and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them for I am the Lord God. They're waiting for this. But unless you understand the importance of the tabernacle, you'll miss the whole thing. 
the assembly had to do with the culminating of what God was doing back, way back, really in Genesis, but at least all of Exodus. Remember, we're being taught through Exodus what slavery is and being free. Remember that being free out of slavery does not mean being a law unto yourself. That's not freedom. We saw that already. Freedom is also not rebelling against the law. Freedom is worship. Right? That's what freedom is, according to Scripture. Because everyone lives for something, and whatever you live for, whatever's most important, whatever is central, whatever you pour your life out, you give money, talents, and time to, whatever you treasure, whatever you value, that's what you worship. Whatever you glory in. And ultimately, we are seeking identities. We're, we're, we're trying to, to glory in something. And whatever it is, if it's not God, it controls you. It's something you have to have. It's something you pour your life at. It's something you're seeking. It always comes up empty, but it's something, unless it's Christ, you're still a slave. That's the point of the book. And now, Israel is gathering from slavery to tabernacle, from slavery to glory, from slavery to freedom, from slavery to worship. That's what's going on in this chapter. So it's not like, oh, well, it's huge. Let me just give you, I got a couple of pictures I wanted to show you. I'll give you an idea because this is important. So there's the, the fencing cloth around the tabernacle, around the whole actual area. You got the uh, brazen altar right here. As you walk in, the outer court, there's the levier, uh, levier that you wash your hands. Here's the actual place of the Holy of Holies right there, the candle stand. Then inside here, right in the depth, in the heart of it, right here is the Holy of Holies. I got a couple other pictures. Okay, I was looking for the Ark Covenant. I found one on. Everybody know that guy? <laughs> the reason. I, I wanted to get a picture, but I thought this was cool. Um, and they melted before the Lord, so that's pretty good. But anyway, right here, see up here, that's, that's the cherubim. The golden cherub with the wings, okay? And that's Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you haven't seen that movie, man, we'll talk after the service. But Okay. Kind of just more of a more mercy seat. It has the uh, cherubims and everything in there. Outer court, inner court, okay? The out, real outer court, then as you walk in, and that's where the presence of God. Also, one last one I just want to show you. The, the outside didn't have a cover, but the inside did, and, and you would walk in through the gate. So that, that's kind of, kind of what we're talking about. I thought I would throw that out there, okay? So as you, as you look at this, and you think, okay, so, so they built this courtyard, like, like so what? Like they really needed a place to gather together. They really needed a separate place in the camp so that they can worship God. Yeah. Most people today, modern, postmodern people think really, that, that's really primitive. Like you need a place to go and gather and, and to worship. It's kind of irrelevant and unnecessary. What is it trying to teach us? Tim Keller, Dr. Tim Keller, which I'm, I am... I've said this before, uh, indebted to in the teaching on, on this gospel according to Moses. He rightly points out that in every culture, really up until very recently, there has been temples and shrines and, or things equivalent to it, and there, there was places where people would gather, really. It's only really a newer phenomenon where people like, it's not a big deal. He said there are two things that most cultures and most ancient cultures believe, two things. First, there's another world. There's something beyond the grave. There's something we leave here and that we go to. Something beyond the natural world into the spiritual world. Right? But to, you know, beyond the material to, to the actual, you know, spiritual transcendent. He calls it the ultimate reality, capital R. Most cultures believe in that. Okay? The second thing most cultures, most civilizations believe in is that there's a barrier. There, there's something blocking the way to deity. Okay, there's a gap, there's a bridge, there's a chasm that needed, there's a door, there's a mediator that was necessary. And that's why you have priests in, in all kinds of different temple worships. You have people that were mediating, there were rituals, there were spiritual processes for that. So he says most cultures believe in a supernatural, something beyond the grave, and most people believe there's a barrier, there's a chasm, there's priests and rituals in order to get to the deity. That's where most cultures believe in. And you think, well, that's great for them, not, not for me. I want to challenge you on that. Another world, a barrier. Let me challenge you on that. If you're here today and you're thinking, that, that, that's great, but that's not for me. First thing I want to tell you as far as the afterlife, God said in his word that he places eternity in our hearts. 
in Ecclesiastes. He placed eternity in our hearts. And throughout the culture, there's always been, and civilization has always been, curiosity in the afterlife. If not a, a belief, but at least a curiosity in the afterlife. A longing and sense of knowing there's something outside this world. Something outside this box in which we live in. Something out there, a longing for something. Something better, something long-lasting. Something that makes more sense. Something that is significant. In ancient Greek culture, they would put a coin inside the mouth of a corpse. It, it, it would pay the fare across the mystic river of death into immortal life. Some American Indians used to bury uh, people with a pony and a bow, right, so they can ride in an afterlife and, and take care of themselves. Greenland, uh, an Eskimo child would, would pass and they would bury, the, bury him with a dog so that they would find their way in the, in the, in the, in the afterlife. There, there's a sense that there's something else. Gary Thomas is a Christian, but he wrote an article in, in Christianity Today. He said this, As Vice President George Bush, 94, the younger, uh, George Bush represented, uh, the, the older one, I got, yeah, 94. The Vice President George Bush represented the U.S. at a funeral from former Soviet leader Leonid Brevnev. Brevnev. Bush was deeply moved by a silent protest carried out by his wife. She stood motionless by the coffin until seconds before it was closed. Then, just as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife reached down and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There in the citadel, he writes, of secular atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run it all, hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life, and that life was best represented by Jesus, hoping that Jesus might have mercy on her husband. It's in our DNA. Second, the barrier. Like the first, why is there so much fear in death? I say because it's the barrier. Some of you may not have thought that maybe a certain time in your life, going to a funeral, but it's the barrier. That's what brings fear and death. There's fearful in death because of the barrier. You can deny it, you can suppress it, but the reality is there is fear. Partly because death is part of the curse. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Genesis 2.15. Eat from this tree or everything you can eat, just this one tree. Don't eat from the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat that tree and you disobey me, you shall die. We know what happens. They sin and they were banished from the presence of God. Sin causes separation, barrier. Barrier. Paul talks about it in Romans. He says the wages of sin is death. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians about sin and death. And he says it's likened to a scorpion bite when he injects the poison into our heart. Listen, your imperfections is the poison of your soul as you're facing death. You know you're guilty. The poison is in all of us because all have sinned. We know we violate the moral standard of God. We know there's something that we will be accountable. That's the barrier. If you say no, 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 are you sure? No, it's the poison. It's the curse. That's, that, that's sin. That's death. What is the purpose of the tabernacle? It points to something greater, something much better, something greater, and it points to a way in. It points to a way in. It points to the passageway through the barriers to God. Look how Moses designed this, or God designed it, and told Moses. What did he do first? He started in the inner sanctuary. He puts the Ark of the Covenant in first. After the, after the surrounding wall, he puts the Ark in the Covenant. The deepest center of the Holy of Holies. A giant curtain is protecting the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Then he works his way out. He's got bread. He's got lights. He moves to the outer court, burnt offering, basin for washing. And what we actually see here is God very deliberately opening a way into his presence. Starting from the inner place because that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the Shekinah glory will reside. And what do you have? You have barriers. You have courts. You have um, tents, you have um, curtains. This physical construction of this tabernacle is very, very important. It's at the center of the camp to show that their lives should be centered on God. It, 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 there's a way in which you have to overcome these barriers to get to God because of their sinfulness. They can't just have this unfettered kind of, I'm um, just waltzing in to the presence of a holy God. There was entrance in very carefully. An Anglican um, theologian, Goldsworthy is his name. He's a, specialized in Old Testament and biblical theology. This is what he says. Everything about this structure speaks of three great truths. One, 
God wills, God wants to dwell among his people and to meet with them. God wills, God wants to dwell among his people and meet with them. Number two, sin separates people from God. It's the barrier. Number three, God provides a way of reconciling, reconciliation through sacrifices and the mediatorial office of the priests. That's what the tabernacle is showing. It goes back to Adam and Eve. Do you remember the story? Adam and Eve sin against God, right? They, they were created just like us for the glory and the praise of God. God was walking among them. There was beauty. There was panim. There was God's face. There was God's presence. There was God's glory. They worship. Everything they did was about worship. And then they sinned. God banishes them from the garden. And what does God do? He puts cherubims with swords. So they can't get back in. You remember that story? In other words, there's a barrier between that life and this life. My presence and separation. I mean, it goes back to Adam and Eve. The tabernacle is all about getting back in. That's what the tabernacle is all about. But it points to something greater. Lastly, the person. Look at verse 33 with me. Chapter 40, verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meetings and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meetings because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses had finished. It wasn't very long until the glory cloud came down, covered the, covered the place and the majesty and the glory of God. This divine approval of God settles on this place. Uh, people call it the theophany, the, the manifestation of the invisible God. And it says that it filled, that word filled is a Hebrew verb, which means it is ongoing. It, it is filling, it is, it is pouring out. It is just incredible. F.B. Meyer says, the brilliant light of surpassing glory, the Shekinah, divine Shekinah glory, shone from within the tabernacle itself, so much so that the very curtains were transfigured by its glow, and the whole place was transfigured and rendered resplendent, brilliant with glory. But let me ask you, folks, let me ask you, is that it? Was, was, was Moses expecting something? Were the Israelites were expecting something more? Was it pointing to a better and greater tabernacle? Something that points to something greater? Something that points to a greater glory? Centuries later, a young Jewish teacher came on the scene. His name was Jesus. He takes three of his closest disciples and goes up to the mountain, just like Moses. And the Bible says in, in, the, in the gospel that Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white as no bleach on earth could make them. And while he was praying, his face became different. Think about this. And then appeared who? Elijah and Moses. And they were talking to Jesus about his exodus. That's the Greek word. His departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And Peter said, Rabbi, talking to Jesus, it's not good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. That's the Greek. Three tents, three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say. He was terrified. And then verse 7 of Mark, a cloud overshadowed them. We got cloud. And a voice came out from the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The word transfigured means that Jesus, from the inside out, this infinite light bulb shined through, shining through his garments, shining through him. It says the glory of God that's been veiled while he was in ministry just kind of peeked through. The blazing radiance of glory unveiled. And you have the mountain, you have the glory, you have the Shekinah glory, you have the Father speaking from heaven. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Jesus, the greater and the better Moses. Jesus, the greater and better Exodus. It can't get any more clear than that. You get the Shekinah glory, you get the cloud. You even got Moses there talking about Exodus. And what did the disciples do? Lord, Lord, let's build some tabernacles. What about the barriers? The glory cloud, the intrinsic glory of Christ, the true um, revelation of his intrinsic nature shining through. Let's get some tabernacles. 
Moses, back in verse chapter 33 of Exodus, says, Lord, let me see your glory. God's like, listen, if I show you my, my absolute, perfect, brilliant, bright, infinite greatness, unimaginable beauty, if you really see it, you'll melt. I'll hide you. I'll hide you. And when I pass by in all my goodness, you'll see it. You'll see it. Look at, look at what it says right here in verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent. You catch that? Barrier again. The glory of God comes down. They're done with the, with the tabernacle and Moses can't get in the place because of the barrier. Now, now let me wrap this up. Now I want you to pay attention. Two more minutes. Who was blocking the entrance of the Garden of Eden so that Adam could not get in and experience the glory of God? A cherubim with a flaming sword. This angelic being, a manifestation, a visible reminder of the glory, presence, and holiness of God. No one in, no one gets in unless you deal with the sword. You've got to get in the sword. You gotta get the, you're going to be cut to shreds. The sword is the justice of God. No one gets in unless you go under the sword. What was on the top of the atonement cover? The cherubim, again. In the Holy of Holies, in the center place where the dwelling of God takes place. The panim of God, the presence of God, the Shekinah cloud comes down. Every year, the high priest would go into the most holy of holy once a year with a lamb. And, and he would sacrifice the lamb, lamb as, as, a, as a picture of a substitute of what we deserve because of our sins. Someone had to die. He would take the blood. He would go into the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat and the atonement cover. And he would sprinkle the blood over the cover where the cherubims are. Under the cover was what? The law of God showing them that you sinned, someone must die. And then God would look down on the broken law. He would hold them responsible. But when the blood was on the atonement cover, they were covering the broken law. And blood was interposed between a righteous God who must judge sin. There is the law. There is the, the, the uh, uh, sword that the cherubim holds. There will be justice. And the blood would then satisfy God. He'd look at the broken law and through the blood, he would, his wrath would be appeased. His wrath would be averted and God would deal graciously with the people. God was saying in that whole tabernacle and even in in Garden of Eden is the only way back to the heart of God is under the sword. It's the only way. And when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year for the sacrifice, he went wielding the sword. The animal was going to be killed. Death is the wages of sin. Now let me wrap it up. Look at verse 33 one more time. And he erected the court around the tabernacle, set up the screen of the gate, so Moses, what? Finished the work. Then the cloud came. Moses finished the work, the cloud came, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. And now he's saying it is really finished, right? I've completed the way into the glory presence of God. I have built the real and final tabernacle. I am the real and final tabernacle. I am the real and final pathway of which Moses was just symbolizing. The minute he said, it is finished, the Bible tells us that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom as if two hands, invisible hands, just ripped it and said, we don't need this anymore. It's not necessary to get into the presence of God. Hebrews 10 says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place of God. The panim, the face of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, opened up through the curtain, which is his body. Let us draw to God. Listen, let us draw near to God with full assurance and faith. Jesus was, said a lot of things, got him in trouble. Calling himself God, got him murdered. Jesus also said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. The Bible says that he was talking about himself. Do you understand what that means? I am the temple. I, in my death and resurrection, am the temple. I'm the way into the very presence, panim, of God. The apostle John wrote this about Jesus. You know the word, John 1.14. And the word became flesh, the word, the eternal word became flesh, dwelt among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of his only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The actual Greek word there is not dwelt among us or it could be translated but the real word is tabernacled 
And the word became flesh and he tabernacled. It was precise. It was on purpose. And John was making a point. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled. When Jesus says, I am the temple, when, when, when John says he tabernacled among us, he's saying, I am God. I am the God on, on the other side. I am the God through the barrier. I am the God. I am the great God. I am the Shekinah glory. I am the ultimate sacrifice. I am the ultimate high priest. I am the basin. I am the altar. I am the bread. I am the lamp. I am everything. That's what Jesus, that's what, say, that's what the Bible says. You say, all right. Amen, right? Let me ask you this. Which, amen, I, I agree. Jesus is saying, I am the only glory that will fulfill your heart. It's one thing to have it intellectually. It's another thing to have it functionally. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment and the longing of your hearts. Listen, glory in me. Worship me. Get lost in my love. Praise me. Worship me and I will satisfy you. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. The barrier of the curtain has been torn. The presence of God is open. Jesus is the glory of God. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate of God's justice and God's love. Listen to this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let light shine out of darkness, God is saying. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy upon us. Thank you for all which you have done, pointing us to the greatest satisfaction, the most glorious treasure, being enveloped in the worship and the praise of you. Lord, that's what our hearts long for. That's what you created us for. And we ask, teach us day by day, moment by moment, month by month, year by year, to treasure you more, to tear down our idols, to, to walk in the truth of the gospel. The worship of you is the greatest command you can give us. Your glory, our joy.